Welcome to China Perspectives, a podcast on economic and credit developments in China, featuring experts from within and outside of Fitch Ratings. My name is Andrew Fennell, Fitch Ratings Lead Sovereign Analyst for China. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Jonathan Anderson, someone whose insights and writings on the Chinese economy I have followed since I was in graduate school and who I feel truly honored to host on the podcast today. John is based in Shanghai and is a co-founder of Emerging Advisors Group, a consultancy focused on China and other emerging economies. Prior to this, he held a number of prominent roles on the sell side, including as the Global Emerging Market Economist for UBS. He also spent nearly a decade at the IMF earlier in his career, where he served as a resident representative of both China and Russia. John, welcome. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you, Andrew, and thank you for the invitation. It's uh, good to be here in a very timely and important topic. I was hoping we could chat about China's all-important property sector, which has been dominating headlines in recent weeks due to the probable default of China Evergrande, one of the nation's largest real estate developers. I would like to spend a few minutes on this issue today, but do think there are some broader trends taking place in the property market that are potentially even more meaningful from both a near and longer-term macro perspective. So maybe at the moment, let's start off with the big picture. Consumption has undoubtedly become a more important growth driver in recent years for China, but I think we are all conscious that China is still an investment-led economy, and property is a critical component to this. Just how important would you say property is to China's overall growth model? Oh, absolutely huge. Uh, if you look at the secular increase in China's investment ratio, remember, uh, at the beginning of the 2000s, China invested uh, 35%, 36% of uh, GDP in terms of the aggregate to capital expenditure to GDP ratio. That number by the late 2000s had ridden had risen, I should say, uh, to a level of 47, 48 percentage points of GDP, right? So a massive 10 percentage point increase in the overall investment rate with a corresponding fall in the consumption ratio. Nearly all of this, in fact, all of that uh, 10 percentage point increase was due to property construction. If you just take construction of residential, commercial property, related development, that essentially explains the massive investment boom in China over the past uh, 20 years, right, which began in the late 90s, early 2000s, and peaked out in 2012, 2013, right? That entire growth phase, that entire big investment-led spurt was really about property construction. When we say property construction, we're talking predominantly about residential construction. So this has been an absolutely massive part of the Chinese growth story. And I should mention that the property sector is also enormous in China. If you look at it in absolute square footage terms relative to the population, relative to GDP, if you look at the value of total construction relative to other parts of the economy, China just stands out light years away from what you normally see in a, an emerging low and middle income economy, right? China has managed to generate a, a, a unique once in a lifetime property boom that has driven its own growth, its development, the generation of wealth for much more than a decade in China. With the benefit of the perspective you just shared, I suspect it's quite clear uh, just how important property is for China itself. But as a longtime follower of your research, I've noted that you've gone even further in your analysis and have quite boldly argued that China property could well be the most important sector 
and I quote, in the universe. Would you be able to share a little bit of your thinking here and perhaps who the other top contenders were in your mind? <laughs> well, sure. The title of most important sector in the universe comes from the fact, obviously, that China has been the biggest growth story and probably the most important single contributor to overall global economic growth during the 2000s and much of the past decade as well, number one. Number two, China has single-handedly driven consumption demand for steel, for iron ore, for copper, for cement, a host of other resources and materials. And again, the lion's share of that, and certainly almost all of the growth of that, has been driven by the great Chinese property boom, right? So when we talk about the commodity boom of the 2000s, again, China plays a leading role in this, and uh, property plays the leading role in China. When we talk about um, you know, the IMF or anyone's uh, sort of calculations of uh, contributions to global growth, main drivers of global growth, again, China takes a leading role there and property takes a leading role in China. So but almost by default, you end up with a view that, you know, there's no single sector in, in the world that's been more important to China in terms of driving these important trends. I mean, one could argue that obviously, I don't know, U.S. tech, for example, has had a more important change in, in the way we all live and, you know, changing the very sort of cultural basis of, uh, of our existence. Fair enough, right? One could argue that the U.S. Fed, for example, is, uh, you know, the main driver of financial and financial market trends uh, on the planet. And fair enough again. But uh, nonetheless, I stand by the title of most important sector in the universe for, for Chinese property uh, for those reasons that I mentioned. I think that sounds like a very, uh, a very plausible premise. And uh, I'll take you up on that one. Um, if we accept uh, the premise that China property is among the most important sectors globally for investors to monitor, I suppose it, it's certainly worth walking through some of the fundamental supply-demand dynamics and, and maybe also kicking the tires a bit on the longstanding view held by at least some uh, that the market is overbuilt, overpriced, uh, perhaps overspeculated, uh, and perhaps maybe just a few policy missteps away from collapse. I know that there's quite a lot of uh, different data that uh, people point to in looking at the construction cycle and the total stock of uh, residential units that have been built. Uh, but you know, just browsing through some of the uh, MBS data in the last couple of days, I mean, there is one series where that shows about 100 million uh, private residential flats completed in the last 20 years alone. Uh, and I know that many analysts, including yourself, have arrived at even higher estimates. I guess regardless of the precise figure one decides to choose, the quantity of apartments built in recent decades is absolutely massive. Where do you stand on the view that there is a fundamental supply overhang? Is there or is there not in your own analysis? Uh, not in the classic sense of massive numbers of either unsold or unoccupied flats, which are just, you know, hanging over the market, uh, set to drive prices down and cause a collapse in property demand at the merest hint of, of market trouble or turmoil or, you know, given a sufficient shock that this house of cards falls apart because you've been building all these flats that no one lives in and, and, and or no one wants. That's clearly not the view we have of China. Now, of course, there are historical ghost cities and there have been administrative housing developments that have been built and left to rot. Uh, there certainly is a special 
speculative tier of housing in China, especially when you go to first-tier markets, Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou, where housing is very liquid, it's easy to buy and sell, and the wealth of billionaires and millionaires all over China has been funneled into these markets as an investment class, right? And so when you talk about pricing and you talk about speculative asset purchases, there certainly is in the top tier, decent element of that, right? You can easily point to uh, industrial magnets who would hold 10 or 20 flats, right? Just as, as, as an asset. So there, there is that. And that's been, uh, all of those stories have been part of the Chinese experience. But when we look at the overwhelming bulk of housing that's been built in China, and the numbers that you bring up are absolutely correct by our own estimates over the last 15 to 20 years, you have essentially built enough housing to uh, hold a third of the population, right? Certainly a third of the, uh, the urban population in China. That's a lot, right? Uh, but keep in mind, you have one thing that, that must be understood in China is that the story of housing is not so much about new household formation. It's not about rural urban migration as much as it is what I like to call reurbanization or rehousing, right? This whole property boom got started predominantly by city after city essentially tearing up old, in many cases dilapidated and certainly outdated state housing in the center of Chinese cities and basically reconfiguring and redeveloping the way urban life is conceived in China. And so city after city after city, it's not so much that you're building new housing for people who didn't have it. What you're doing is you're tearing down people's old crappy homes and building them a somewhat better place in a different location, right? And, and redeveloping the entire urban environment as you go. That is what kickstarted the, the property process. And that really, as of the last half decade, is still what's been going on in terms of the major drivers. And as you do this, of course, cities spread. And so then you expand into the surrounding farmland and into the surrounding towns and villages. And those inhabitants who were considered rural residents become part of this expanding urban sprawl. And so they get reclassified as urbanites. Their houses get torn down and they get caught up and rehoused in these modern residential belts as well. So we've built a lot of housing in China and it's enough to house an astounding number of people. But again, these are people who have been broadly pushed out of, of existing housing and have had uh, new housing created for them. And I suppose if you except the idea that if you came into the 80s, the existing housing stock was probably of a pretty low quality. And so in China's case, maybe there is an argument that you effectively needed to replace, if not the entire housing stock, a, a large share of it. Yes, indeed. And, uh, you know, even today, if you do the math and you look at what's been done, you, pr you still have half the population in China living in housing that existed, say, before 1995 right? Or before 1990. Uh, there's still a good bit of work to be done here, if you will. Arguably not at the same pace that we've seen in the past, and that's something we'll come back to when we talk about the future of Chinese property. But it does help explain why you don't have a massive fundamental supply overhang in the market. You have a lot of press over the past years about, again, ghost cities, about uh, tens of millions and even 
up to 100 million empty flats, right, which are supposed to be hanging over the Chinese property market. But when you actually go through and look at the, the details here, what you find is that most of that is simply not the case, right? Either they are occupied, right? They may not be occupied by the owner, but they're, they're occupied by other family members or by, you know, those who are renting. You have, keep in mind also that the development model in China is a pre-sale model. So once you've actually broken ground and started construction, you can go ahead and pre-sell the housing units as a developer. And that's the common way that, that you buy housing in China, which means that you buy housing and maybe two years later, that flat is considered completed and delivered. And at that point, you still have to fit it out with floors and with drywall and fit it uh, with uh, appliances, et cetera, et cetera. It may be another year or year and a half before you actually move in, right? So a lot of what is considered unoccupied or, or excess supply of housing is simply housing that has is either on its way to completion or has been completed, but the occupants have not yet moved in. And in case after case where you've had you know, slideshows of unoccupied uh, developments and major ghost cities, you come back three, five years later, and what you find is that uh, a lot of these places are uh, full up, and most of them tend to be occupied after a you know, sufficient period of time. And uh, as a result, again, what you don't see in China is small shocks, which lead to property collapses. In fact, we've had probably five or six property cycles, mini cycles in China since the beginning of the property boom, where you've had periods of tightening, relative decline in the market, sales falling off for a year or two, then they pick up again. And, you know, then they tighten up, sales fall off for a year or two, then they pick up again. But you never have that turning into a route. Whereas again, if you take a true property bubble in, in, in other cases, like the U.S., like Spain, like the Asian crisis economies, like Central Europe in the mid-2000s, uh, you have this ever-burgeoning housing story that just goes up and up and up unimpeded. And then when finally you start to pull the financing away and some, you get some shock to the system, things collapse, right? So sales go down by 70%, prices go down by 30, 40%. Uh, you get a five-year depression in the housing market, right? That doesn't happen in China because, again, there's always been fundamental demand there for the housing that's been supplied, at least for the most part in the market. Well, since you've already invoked the term bubble and, and, and prices, perhaps it's, it's worth if we pivot and spend a few minutes talking about price levels. I guess this is also a frequently cited talking point that prices in China are very high and and perhaps out of proportion with uh, normal income levels. I guess this can be a sign of frothiness, uh, as we saw in other examples around the world, including uh, the lead up to the U.S. subprime crisis. What are your thoughts on the sustainability of property prices in China, I guess, at a, at a nationwide level? Well, I'm glad to hear you uh, invoke the term nationwide, because that's an important distinction. I live in Shanghai. Prices there are extraordinarily high, right? Uh, they're higher than they are in New York. Uh, they are, depending on what region of London you invoke, again, prices in Shanghai are very similar, right? Uh, and uh, completely out of whack with the average incomes for Chinese citizens on a nationwide basis, right? And so in Shanghai, and to some extent in Beijing and Guangzhou and other first-tier cities, it's very difficult for young people who are starting out in their careers to find housing, right, in new families. It's really become a problem right, in terms of being able to accommodate university graduates and provide a sustainable basis for new job entrants to come into the city, precisely because you have speculative demand coming 
coming in from all over the country, right? Money that is made in Sichuan, they'll buy a flat in Shanghai. You make your money in Henan, in, uh, you know, mining or in pig farming, you're going to take your cash and you're going to come to Beijing or you're going to come to Shanghai and you're going to buy property there, right? Rather than, or in addition to what you're buying in, in your, your home location. So these are magnet cities uh, in the same way that New York is a magnet city, in the same way that London's a magnet city or Moscow in Russia, right? So you're funneling in money from everywhere, which drives prices through the roof. And this has become a, a big talking point for the Beijing authorities, right? The central government, as they look at what's going on across the country in terms of, of property, they always come back to the megacities, right? You look at Shanghai prices, you look at Beijing prices, things are, are crazy there. And that usually spurs a round of soul searching and uh, policy priorities about what to do about property prices. Fair enough, right? However, However, the point is, if you look at property on a nationwide basis, and keep in mind, there are hundreds of major cities in China, Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou, all of these first tier areas are, you know, less than 5% of the total Chinese population, right? Uh, so most of the, of the country is living uh, elsewhere in, you know, 30 provinces and cities dotting these provinces everywhere. And if you look at nationwide prices, the story is very different. First of all, price-income ratios in an absolute sense are already much lower than they would be in, in Beijing, Shanghai, etc. And second, when you look at nationwide prices over time, coming back to your point about bubbles, uh, the subprime crisis in the U.S. with rising price-income ratios, every property bubble we've ever seen, for that matter, has been characterized by rising housing and residential prices relative to underlying incomes, right? That's just a, a fact of, of, of life in, in property bubbles. That has not been the case in China. On a nationwide basis, property prices have clearly risen. They've risen 6 7% per year on average over the past 20 years. I mean, this has been, you know, quite a big nominal increase in prices, you know, 300, 400% uh, increases in average housing prices. However, keep in mind that incomes of the urban population have risen a lot faster. On average, over the past 20 years, we're talking about something on the order of 10 or even 11% nominal income growth, right? So if you take a price-income ratio chart in China, and really it, almost independent of which price series you use, there are quite a few of them in China, and, and many of them have differences in the way they're calculated, but all of them show essentially the same thing, which is flat or falling price-income ratios over time. Relative to underlying incomes, Chinese property prices nationwide have simply not gone up. And in most cases, they've gone down, just given how fast that denominator has risen, of course, which is the underlying income story. So it's easy to look at prices which have gone up fourfold in any given city in China and say this is crazy. But remember, incomes have gone up five or sixfold over the same period. So on an income-adjusted basis, the real outliers would be, again, those first-tier markets where you have uh, this funnel effect and assets and money coming in from all across the country driving up prices. And there you have a problem in the same way that you have a problem in London, right? If you're young, you want to get a job in the city, where do you live? You're going to be way outside. And that's now the case in places like Shanghai and Beijing as well. It's unfortunate, but again, that by itself doesn't mean that you have a property bubble, right? That's simply the way life works in these major rapidly growing economies. 
Okay, so we've we've sort of talked a little bit about uh, price affordability and how it's gotten better over time in China's case. Do you have any thoughts on on land prices? It's actually become very topical in recent weeks, uh, which I think we'll probably bring up in a little bit. But land prices, in addition to property prices, have also been booming so much so that our property team has been telling me that it has contributed to a narrowing of the margins. Uh, that property developers have enjoyed in recent years. Yeah, I guess a few things to say here. Number one would be that land prices have certainly risen on average more than housing prices and other property prices, right? If you look at the relevant time series, and it's a little bit more difficult to get at a true sort of nationwide land price, but there are three or four different series and methodologies that one can use. And so what we do is we simply take the average across all of the available ways that people have used to compute land prices. And what we find is that when one does that, if property price have risen, say, fourfold over, you know, a 15 or 20 year period, uh, land prices would have risen five or sixfold, right? So they've certainly been more buoyant, right? And on an income adjusted basis, right? And I'm not sure, by the way, whether one should properly measure land prices relative to underlying incomes in the economy. But when you do that, so use a land price income ratio, uh, you find that it hasn't fallen. In fact, it's gone up, but it's gone up very slightly, right? It certainly has not gone up by anything remotely close to, say, what U.S. land prices and U.S. Houses, housing prices did in the housing boom there. It's not, you know, comparable to Ireland or Spain. It's not comparable to what you saw in, in you know, the Asian crisis, housing bubbles, for example, and in most other cases we see. So land prices have been buoyant, and there's certainly a land story in China, but it's very difficult to point to any of the relevant indicators and call this a true blue bubble, right? It hasn't gone up 10 or 15 fold, at least not on a nationwide basis, uh, and is not, you know, rising through the roof as we speak. You mentioned developer margins. And of course, uh, you know, you cover the major names and a lot of the listed companies. If you take uh, the aggregate NBS data on what's happening with developers and real estate firms on a nationwide basis, and you look at what's happened to their margins, simply net income relative to sales, for example, or net income as a share of assets. What you find is that they've certainly declined on trend over the 2000s into the early part of the last decade, right? So you started out at the beginning of the housing boom, everybody making out like a bandit because, you know, again, um, you know, there was a lot of constraints, there was huge underlying pent-up demand, and so you could almost charge what you wanted. As the property story matured, uh, you know, margins fell and developers uh, became a more commoditized story. However, uh, over the past, say, six, seven years, what we've seen for the, the developer sector as a whole has been more of a flattening out, right, of, of, of underlying margins in the economy. We haven't seen developers with collapsing margins. And I, we'll talk about this when we talk about Evergrande, which has been a massive exception to that sort of general rule. But for developers as a whole, it's actually been a bit more stable for the numbers that we see, right? And, and as a result, I mean, we don't sort of subscribe to the view that land prices have gotten so insane and so overworked that, you know, they're becoming a problem for sustainability here. That's not what the, uh, the macro level data would suggest. And again, I can't speak for the individual developer names that, uh, you know, your analysts might be covering. But again, at a macro level, it's certainly less than that. I guess now is the moment to talk about China Evergrande. Uh, at Fitch, we've had to take a couple of rating actions given recent developments. There are clearly a lot of views 
in the market about what's going to happen and why this has all happened. I guess from your perspective, are you largely viewing this as an isolated event or do you think it speaks to something deeper about the current state of China's property market with the potential for broader macro spillovers? A bit of both, actually, if you think about uh, what's happening and with reference to you know how I prefaced this conversation a few moments ago. Uh, of course, in immediate terms, Evergrande is clearly an isolated event, right? I mentioned uh, the broad uh, statistics for developer margins and the real estate economy in general. Evergrande is, has been a massive outlier. Remember, again, property, the boom really ended in terms of, of growth and, and secular momentum. The boom ended anywhere between 2013 and 2015 in the Chinese property market. Since then, You've held up, but, you know, the property economy has generally moved sideways. And as you transition from a rapidly growing market to a market that is essentially flat now and and not giving you a lot of secular growth, uh, and again, that's been the case for the last five or six years, it's important for players in that sector not to miss the turn, right? So, you know, many developers, and one of the reasons you've had China pushing back against uh, developer leverage and developer balance sheets is that over the last five years, it's become abundantly clear that, you know, we're in sort of a flattish property economy. And it's important to make sure that developers are not caught out by leveraging up too much and uh, committing to massive expansion of balance sheets and projects in an environment where you may not get the sales at the end of the day. So, you know, if you look at, at most of the, of the developer sector, that there's been this process of gradually realizing that we're no longer in a secularly growing market and, you know, adjusting balance sheets accordingly. Evergrande was exactly the opposite. Evergrande was so, so different from the average property developer in that from 2015 through 2019 going into 2020, they did exactly the opposite. They tripled down massively levered, uh, took on huge amounts of debt, committed to a enormous expansion of projects, construction commitments, again, in an environment where the, the general market was moving uh, somewhere very different. And sure enough, uh, you wake up in 2020, things are still okay, but as you go into 2021, you get hit by two things. You get hit by secularly declining market. And again, the market has been declining all year for the past three quarters. And number two, you get hit with uh, very strong policy actions by Beijing against developers specifically to prevent them from continuing to take leverage and forcing them to be much more active in retrenching balance sheets. Well, in that sort of environment, who's going to be caught out? The guy who's been partying like mad right, for the past five years. And of Evergrande is certainly not the only one, but it was by far the largest one. And it is the major default story. It's also the one that was most active in bond finance, right? Many developers have held to a more traditional financing model where you get financing predominantly from banks or in, in some cases from the non-bank financial system. But other developers have been much more aggressive in accessing the public markets. And of those, Evergrande was huge, right? They went into the dollar bond market. They went into the local bond market. And of course, uh, once you stop the party, you make it difficult for them to refinance. And in an environment where the market is sagging in terms of sales and demand, they very quickly find themselves in trouble. And that's exactly what we've seen you know, sort of burgeoning in 2021. And it's certainly not the only one. You have other s smaller players who on an individual basis have fallen into similar straits. But uh, we need to stress this is not the case for the developer sector as a whole. 
right? Uh, as large as Evergrande is, uh, and it is, depending on how you count, the first or second largest developer in China, depending on whether you use sales, revenue, or assets as your benchmark. But nonetheless, uh, on any of those benchmarks, it's also not very big, right? It's a couple of percent of total property activity in China. There are hundreds and thousands of smaller developers in, in the economy. There are others who are also large approaching the size of Evergrande. So this is not essentially a market-making institution that in and of itself is going to cause the collapse of the property market. It has been a nasty unwind. It's caused a lot of market turmoil. But if you look at the outright contagion here, keep in mind, most developers are in a better place, are in better compliance with underlying restrictions. The property market is contracting to be sure. It's not collapsing and prices are not falling apart. There's no massive leverage unwind on the buying side. Households underlying mortgage loan to value ratios are nowhere even remotely in the same solar system as what they would have been in Spain or the US or in other property bubble economies as well. So Evergrande has been big, it's been ugly, but it is at the end of the day, a small part of the property story with limited contagion exposures to the rest of the system. Thanks for that, John. One final big picture question for you before you go. Though I have to admit that having gone through this conversation with you, I have a feeling I know where you're going to come out, but I'll give it a shot regardless. In the latest five-year plan, uh, the government indicated it wants China's urbanization rate to reach 65% by 2025 and then rise to 75% by 2035, which I suppose would put China broadly in line with that of many advanced economies. Now, some view and have made the argument that this is an indication that there's still quite a bit of runway for residential construction in China to grow robustly for at least another 10 years. I'd be curious to know what is your longer term structural view on China's property market? And would you agree with that statement about urbanization? Let me point out immediately that there is a big difference between having China continue to build and continue to urbanize and having the construction sector and the property sector grow, right? And I want to draw a very firm line between those two concepts. Again, uh, as mentioned earlier, over the last five to seven years, depending on how you count and which statistics you use, the property sector has not grown at all. If you look at physical construction numbers, especially on a broad, all-encompassing basis, we've been pretty much flat since the first part of the 2010s, right? The build is enormous. We're building a lot of housing every year. And as we do that, we're contributing to an ongoing urbanization process, right? Because we're pushing urban boundaries out. We're taking in surrounding areas. Now we're actually starting to focus more on the migrants who have been living in the factory zones and belts who have been living on the construction sites. That demographic is building a lot more policy-oriented housing. We're focusing on a, a bit more now on, on the lower end of the housing market in order to you know, uh, allow those migrants to actually stay in the cities rather than returning home to their villages, you know, when they finish their tenure in the factories, et cetera, et cetera. So you can have ongoing urbanization with a flat construction story, right? That actually has been the story of the last six or seven years in China. Urbanization rates have continued to grow up, essentially in line with the five-year plan prediction. So again, when you look at the five-year plan, that's consistent with uh, continued strong construction numbers. It's not consistent necessarily with growing construction numbers. And when you ask us about our forecast for the future, the 2000s was all about 
rapidly rising and massively expanding uh, construction, huge growth over that decade, decade and a half going into the early 2010s. The last decade has been more about numbers stabilizing and continuing to build uh, very large amounts of housing on an annual basis. However we approach it for the next 10 years, our base case comes out to be gradual decline, right? You can still urbanize in China, but I would be very surprised in 10 years' time if China is still building the same amount of housing they are today, simply given how big the build has been over the last 10 years, how much reurbanization and rehousing has already been done, how much of the population we've already provided relatively new housing for. You just can't keep this up uh, at the same pace going forward. And as a result, whether it's over the next five years or 10 years, we expect construction activity to be moderating and to be falling not only as a share of GDP, but in absolute terms, we expect total steel use and steel uh, cement uh, consumption to be on a declining trend over the next decade as well. And that may still get you to your five-year plan urbanization commitments, because again, you're still building a lot of housing and still pushing out on those borders and, and allowing people to stay. But it, it's hard to keep up even the pace that China has today over the decade to come. John, Thanks so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thanks, Andrew. And again, thanks very much for having me on. You've been listening to Fitch Ratings China Perspectives podcast. To learn more about our ratings and research on China, please visit us at fitchratings.com. Please subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Take care and until next time.